Welcome to Edu Weather. In this special episode, we welcome Hayley Hughes, who is the author of Preserving Positivity in her new book, released uh, just this week. So we interview her and I'm sure you'll enjoy it. You have recently released a book called Preserving Positivity. Um, and its main kind of focus is about um, encouraging people to stay in the classroom. I guess, what was the kind of reason for bringing that book out at this time? Um, I think it's important to make the distinction as well that I think my book is aimed at keeping experienced teachers in the classroom as opposed to um, early career teachers, because although early career teachers are massively important, you know, and we have to recruit more teachers, um, I think retaining experienced teachers is something that hasn't really been focused on in the market for edgy books before um and as an experienced teacher myself who's been teaching you know not far off 15 years now really a few years short um i you know i i think sometimes people like me feel a little bit forgotten Mm-hmm. Um, because a lot of the research that's out there, a lot of the incentives to join the profession are for early career teachers. And I think I wrote it for people like me who haven't had a linear career. Their careers haven't been perfect. It's been a roller coaster ride like teaching is. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to show them that they're not alone. And that, you know, if they're feeling like they uh, are disappointed and disenfranchised with the teaching world, that there are other people out there who feel the same, but there are lots and lots of things to be positive about because we have an amazing job and it's worth fighting for. So essentially that that is why I released the book. Yeah, and that's what came across in reading the book in terms of people need to have a bit of confidence and belief in themselves that actually they're doing a really good job and what is a really challenging um, profession at times, but it's also a really rewarding profession. Mm-hmm. And I think sometimes we're probably guilty of, of not focusing on the positives, aren't we? We're just so hard on ourselves. We're saying we want things better and better every time, but actually we don't stop and and take stock of things that are doing. I think I'm guilty of that even, to be honest, which I think is partly why I wanted to write the book as well, because, you know, I haven't always been positive um, about the teaching profession and about my job um, and about the way I do my job. And I've had moments where I've, I've wanted to leave myself. And that's why I'm pretty unflinching in the book, as you know, um, because you've seen it. You know, I each chapter is kind of setting out a reason why people leave um, in, in the surveys that the government does. Um, So I'm pretty unflinching about the problems. I'm not standing there telling classroom teachers that teaching is perfect and it's going to be an easy job because it isn't. Um, But I think there are, as you say, there are a lot of positives to take from it. And I think sometimes as educators, a lot of us have been in education for so long, many of us since we were four years old, that we actually forget that there are other professions out there that are just as difficult as teaching, but in many different ways, Um, you know, and I think sometimes we need to be a bit more appreciative of that and a bit less hard on ourselves and a bit less self-critical because we're brilliant at reflecting teachers and being quite critical on ourselves and wanting to improve but I think that can actually be a a barrier sometimes to to realizing how great the job of teacher is. And you mentioned your um your non-linear career there used to be a a journalist Mm -hmm. uh, and then you came into teaching um and you had a stint as head of um department Mm -hmm. and then you spoke in your book about you feeling as though you kind of fell out of love with your your job at that point. 
and then that's when you just made that decision. Some would say a really brave decision because there could be many people who are in positions who've just ended up there by accident and then they've got a mortgage to pay and, you know, mm. and they end up stuck in that position. What, what, what kind of reflections do you have from that career um, path that not necessarily you've chosen, but has, has kind of happened along the way? Um, well, it's an unusual one, really. I mean, I, when I was at university doing an English degree, I used to be quite disparaging about people who became teachers. And I know that's a terrible thing to say. I think I probably say it in the book. I used to think that people who became teachers were people who didn't know what on earth to do with a degree, uh, particularly English, which is my subject. And I always wanted to be a writer. I had no um, ambitions, no longing, no deep-seated desire to teach children. Um, I didn't really like children that much, I would probably say, growing up, because I was the eldest of eight kids. So I'd had enough of kids. Um, <laughs> you know, I was fed up. Um, so I became a writer and it was all I ever wanted. And then um, I ended up at a kind of infamous tabloid newspaper, which has now been closed down um, in, in London. And I was thrust into this limelight at, you know, age 21. Um, and it was too much for me. And, and I realised that I actually had a conscience. Um, I wanted to do something that was more ethical. Um, that was giving more back to society. So I spent some time in a school and absolutely loved it. Um, and, I, and I felt really lucky that I discovered this passion where I could use my degree and, and inspire future generations. And because I'd had this previous job, which was incredibly difficult, incredibly tough, you had to be really resilient to do, I rose through the ranks really quickly in a school um, because I was very capable, um, you know, came across as quite intelligent, quite confident. Um, and I ended up somehow becoming the head of department in a special measures school. Um, and it was the toughest thing I'd, I'd ever done. Um, you know, I take my hat off to people who can stay as a middle leader, especially in a special measures school for a long period of time. Um, and this was a partly kind of SLT role as well, because I had whole school responsibilities. Um, and I just hated it. I was waking up, you know, at night as a detail in the book, um, sending emails, never being able to switch off. My marriage was suffering. I had a young child who I never really saw. There were so many times that I took other people's children above my own. Um, and it's a really sad realisation when, when you come to know that. Um, so I decided you know, perhaps bravely, perhaps stupidly, who knows, um, to, to give up and, and to move kind of 60 miles away to a, to a completely different school, left behind colleagues that I loved, kids that I adored. Um, and it, it really upset me and I, and I moved away. And, um, you know, it was tough to, to go back to the classroom because you've been used to making decisions um, and, and to be kind of the person that sat back and having the decisions done to them. But I can honestly say that it's the best thing that I've ever done. Um, there are times when I look at people who are rising around me um, or head teachers that are younger than me and have been teaching for less years than me. And I, I wonder whether I've made the right decision. But when I think of my own well-being, my family life, the things that I've had the opportunity to do outside of school, such as the, the doctorate that I'm halfway through, the books, the writing. And would I have been able to, to juggle that and manage that on top of um, a leader? People do, but I don't know whether I'm, I'm capable of it. So I'm, I'm pleased with the path that I've taken. And there will be people out there, as you say, who, have, who feel the same, but they don't feel like they can because they have, you know, financial um, things that they, they have to pay for and they, they don't feel like they can step down. But I think life's too short and being back in the classroom has just been an absolute joy. 
and I feel like we're kind of getting into the, the the meat of the book now. Do you know what you're you're alluding to there? That sort of work life balance, the um the the pressures that that come with the job, and 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 you say that you provide a kind of warts and all view of the profession and I think in some ways that's that's really refreshing actually it's not sort of shying away from it or trying to view the world through rose-tinted glasses it's actually saying here's what it is here's the job that I do still love but these are very real problems and actually the the stories that you've got from multiple professionals that you that you've you've spoke to that I mean these are incredibly powerful stories but for me, the, the, I was I was both encouraged while reading your book, and I thought it was it, it was it was excellent. Um, and uh, reading the stories and your your kind of pragmatic advice at the end of the chapters as well were were really interesting. But I don't think we should turn away from these problems. And I wonder if we can maybe just tackle them here, do you know, and think about like especially those kind of beginning three chapters about sort of workload that accountability pressure that has come around from that and maybe we can discuss that a bit and reflect on that about how that's maybe different north of the border for us a little bit as well so but there are problems for everyone as you say so why did you start with those three chapters were those the most important for you are they the biggest issues for you what's your what's your thoughts I think it was a mixture of things really I think they were most important for me um, I think were the three biggest issues that had made me consider quitting the profession. Also, when I read the DFE's research, um, they were the three biggest problems that all teachers cited who were thinking of leaving the profession or had left. And also, when I spoke to, you, you alluded there to the uh, professionals that I interviewed, when I did the qualitative research um, from some of the focus groups and the interviews with people, they were the three biggies that, that came back every single time for that. So, that yeah. yeah. That, that was where it came from, really, um, all three of those. And I, and I think it's something that SLTs are thinking more about now, this teacher well-being. And I think they have to because we're, we're in the middle of a crisis with retention and, and recruitment. Um, so I think it is something that SLTs are thinking more deeply about. And there, there are authors out there who are doing amazing work specifically writing about workload. If you think of Kat Howard and, and her book, you know, Stop Talking About Wellbeing, also fellow John Cat uh, education publisher, um, you know, she gives some brilliant pragmatic suggestions in her book that is specifically aimed at kind of reducing workload. And I just think we can't talk about it enough, really. It's massive. I mean, Hayley, I just want to pick up on something you mentioned earlier around um, your school being in special measures. Now, obviously, in Scotland, we have an inspection system, but we don't have kind of the same kind of language or the same kind of system um for our listeners can you just describe to us what that means for a school um how does a school fall into special measures and you know is it likely to get out of that system yeah i mean the i mean i left this school that we're talking about six years ago now um so it was under the old ofsted framework so things have changed um, so it used to be essentially we call it falling into a category. Um, so, you know, you have kind of an outstanding school, a good school, a school that requires improvement. And then you have special measures, which is the bottom category. And a school will usually fall into that if we're um, to do with data and progress. Mostly that will trigger an Ofsted inspection. And then when Ofsted come and, and look around and observe things, they may come already with a preconceived judgment of that the school should be in special measures due to data and progress. And then if what they see matches that in terms of lesson observations, curriculum, ethos, all of the things that you would normally look at, then they will be put into a category. And um, I think there's 
being put into a category is really difficult because obviously you are subject to more scrutinies, more checks. Mm-hmm. Um, you have a visit from an inspector every six weeks usually, or you certainly did when I was at the, the old school, um, every six weeks, check on what you're doing. Um, and, it, and it's really kind of nasty environment to work in in some ways because you can imagine that the school leaders are, are worried about their own positions and their own jobs and then that is then cascaded down onto middle leaders who are feeling an immense amount of pressure and then cascade it down to their staff because they don't mean to but it's human yeah. it's a human reaction if you're under too much stress it's like a bomb going off isn't it you know yeah. Um, so it's really difficult and the school can come out of it. I mean, I've seen schools go from special measures to outstanding within a couple of years, but it takes a huge amount of effort. And I mean, I certainly know that the school that I worked at is doing really well now in terms of results. I'm not sure whether they're, they're in a category any longer. I haven't checked because it's been a long time since I worked there. But um, I know that they lost a lot of staff along the way. And I think there's an analogy I make in the book where, you know, the head might be very happy, but she's like a general in the army who stood on a hill surveying that she's won the battle, but she's got about two soldiers left. And and that's the cost, isn't it? Um, it sounds quite unbearable, you know, From and it's not anything like we would be used to in, in the Scottish inspection system. Schools here would generally be inspected every six years thereabouts. Um, They would look at data, they would come in, um, and they've done a lot of work recently about trying to present it as a much more supportive role, working with you, where it's based heavily on your self-evaluation and they're coming in to to validate that self-evaluation. If a school is is deemed as requiring improvement, but that's not really a term that you use, um, they would come back generally in a year or seek support from the local authority. So that kind of six-week return wouldn't ever really happen, that kind of short. I mean, that's quite incredible. What can you actually do in six weeks? Um, do you I know anything meaningful, I guess? Sorry, Jude. No, I'm just saying, I think for me, there was a point for, in, in the book where I was like, aha, that's exactly it. And that's where the, the, the key points for us up here, that we are seeing the same thing. And it's this commodification of education you know it's these kind of the market principles being applied to education these Thatcherite ideologies that are coming through that it's just it's impossible how can you focus on well-being and have a really happy staff when you're trying to set competitive markets against one another do you know which creates this scarcity model that it's only the best and the brightest that can rise to the top instead of actually thinking how do we all support one another within this how, how can this be a profession that supports one another? and interestingly a lot of the stuff that that, that you've mentioned from the the kind of anecdotal evidence that's within this you know it's that it's those people that are mentioning the support networks or the support from other colleagues and the support that's around them that helps them get through this and that's clear that comes across in spades in this but they're at odds with one another for me do you know that sort of survival of the fittest but also this embracing a family type attitudes within education and I feel that we need to address that before moving forward. No, I think you're totally right. And, you know, it's a, the, the kind of neoliberal principles in, in education, you know, I mention it in the book and it's something that I just despair of because, mm. 
I think, you know, I don't know whether it's the same for you guys nor for the border, but it just, you know, over here in England, you know, it is all marketisation of, of education and, and, as you say, survival of the fittest. And we see it with the uptake of, of art subjects at universities and A-levels because kids have had it kind of drummed into them that STEM is the only option. Um, and I think it's pervasive, um, you know, and it's and it's divisive as well. Um so, yeah, I, I totally agree with you. And I think that probably came across in the book, really. I, I think I nailed my colours to the mast in terms of politics in there quite, quite a lot, really. No, I think that's great. And again, for me, that worked. And I think we've, we've discussed this before and we have a kind of alarm that goes off whenever we start talking about politics because I get one of my horse and start shouting about it. But I think I think it's it's the key to, to well-being for, for everyone. You know, for all for all elements of it, and not just teachers within that, and not just classroom teachers, but SLT included, because there's a whole range of pressure that, that's that's on on their shoulders and on the children and on parents. That it's just it's gonna it's gonna burst because yep. actually it's not set up. It, the whole system is set up to benefit just the few, and and that's that's a really interesting point for us to to focus on there. I think, uh, and then I suppose kind of leading on because. Well, while I was reading through that, and I think so, I'm a deputy head teacher at a primary school, and and Jace is a a deputy as well. And and certainly one of the big differences I saw reading through the book was when I got to the chapter about behaviour. Um, certainly there's been a huge emphasis on um restorative practice, nurturing practice, and I, I know myself I've kind of driven through policies that when I was reading your reflections and 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 other colleagues that you've included in the book as well, it really made me kind of pause for thought to think actually there's there's a different perspective on behaviour if, if you're in the classroom compared to SLT. And I think one of the, the main um, things throughout the book was a lack of support from SLT that came across within behaviour. But it was it was just, it felt like a kind of contrast to what we're seeing certainly in Scotland. And, but I would also say that there's probably a lot of professionals in Scotland that would say that behaviour is one of the main reasons that they're wanting to leave the profession. I wonder if you could just touch on behaviour as a as a as a chapter on it as a discussion point. Um, I mean, I, w- I wanted to make it kind of clear in the book, and I hope I have really, that I wasn't SLT bashing. Um, you know, I think SLT do an absolutely incredible job. Um, and that's why I put kind of the, the big frame in with all the, the comments about SLT and how fantastic they were, etc. But they work hard and sometimes things slip through the net. And I think you've hit the nail on the head there. I think the, the behaviour that SLT deals with is completely different from at the coalface as a classroom teacher. And restorative practices are fantastic if they are done correctly. But as I said in, in the chapter in the book, you know, there's colleagues of mine who've been involved in restorative justice cases where things have been completely turned back on the teacher and they felt actually felt completely victimised because you've not empowered the children. You've actually made it so that they can pick on the teacher, really, and make it feel like they've done terrible things things so it can actually restore relationships at all in that respect um so i think i mean i i'm i'm lucky because i would say that behavior is probably my strength to be quite honest um and a lot of the classes that i teach are your kind of um typical challenging kids because i was a challenging kid 
So, you know, we, we can smell our own. We get each other. It's, it's fine. Um, but, you know, speaking to other colleagues and some of the shocking stories that they told me about the behaviour that hadn't been dealt with, you know, it just made me feel really sad and, and actually really lucky that I've worked in a couple of schools where SLT have been incredible supportive um and i think it's something that we definitely need to sort out as a profession and there needs to be this you know this lack of respect for teaching professionals needs to be eradicated or we need to get rid of it in some way mm. and you know as i say in the book i don't really know what the answer is um to that but i think um it's something that has to be about consistency it has to be about cultures school cultures and it has to come from the top and every member of staff has to buy in because I think from what I was seeing with the people I was speaking to who were struggling with behaviour and that was a factor in them wanting to leave the profession, it came down to consistency. That's exactly it, I think. I think, and that's what comes across whenever I'm speaking to lots of people about behaviour as well. It's that even if you've got the highest of ideals and the best policy or the best amount of training that goes, if there's not that consistency that runs alongside it, then then what we see is an alienation of the workforce because they're the one that we have control over, as it were. Do you know that we can say, well, either, yeah, you've not done a good enough job, do you know, because you can't blame the child in that culture. And that's not what it's about. It's not about trying to blame the professional for not doing it well enough it's actually about us all saying actually we're part of something bigger here and this this way of doing it is harder maybe and it's more complex but unless we're all doing it together then then we're not going to win with that you know and I, but I think that speaks to it doesn't sit separate from what we were talking before about workload and about accountability measures and about work-life balance it's one in the same but it's just one part of that puzzle isn't it whereas if we had a better system for all those other things I think we would find managing behavior a lot easier as well yeah, no, I, t I totally agree with you. I think, you know, it gets to the stage, doesn't it, when you, it, when behaviour is bad and there's no consistency where you start to lower your standards. And I think the minute that you've lowered your standards and you think, actually, no, I'm, I can't be bothered chasing that up or I can't be bothered following that through because I know that I'm going to get no support, then you just let other colleagues down and it's a domino effect. And I've been there and I've, I've seen it happen. Um, and, it, and it's tough. And you have to question why you're not getting that support and what are the things that are in place that are meaning that you can't deal with what is effectively the bread and butter of a school. It's about it's about making children grow up to be the best version of themselves they can be. And if they've not got the time for that, then what, what, what are we playing at? Do you know, if it's filling yeah. in sheets and, and doing other unimportant things, we need to readjust that. So, yeah, I, I just wanted to get on to discuss that. So thanks for that. I guess just my kind of reflection on that would be particularly from secondaries, um, large organisations, sometimes it feels like their, you know, departments are, are schools within a school and it can be really, really hard. I've seen this done really well, but also done really poorly. It can be really hard to actually pull everyone together in the same direction because you've got people, you know, sometimes over 100 teachers in some of the large schools that have very different views of what education are meant to be, what behaviour looks like, what um, their purpose is really. And it, I think that's probably one of the biggest challenges to achieve that consistency is, is developing that sense of what you're part of, something bigger, and that is the school, rather than just being your department or, or your area in the school. Do you know, I've, I've seen that. Um, and that's part of the challenge, isn't it? Pulling people together. And I guess linking in with that then, Haley, is 
the importance of culture within a school and and all of the things you've mentioned are here around leadership, autonomy, um, funding, um, and the kind of high expectations culture. That that was the kind of word that brought it all together for me is how do we create that culture? Because surely we want our teachers, you know, they're they're paid, they're professionals. We call them professionals, but sometimes I think we forget to actually give them the the freedom, the space to actually be professionals. How do we allow teachers to get on with their job? It's difficult, isn't it? Because we live in an accountable, uh, you know, industry because education is an industry now, unfortunately. But we do, we're part of an accountability culture um, that that comes directly from the government. You know, even if we look at results, you know, schools are are led by lead tables and the progress eight measures. Um, so it's very difficult. I think it's all about excellent leadership and having a leader who trusts his staff, who believes that they will do what they ask, they're they asked to do um, and about getting buy in from staff as well. I mean, I've worked in schools, uh, big schools, um, you know, with, like you say, way over 100 teachers um, with with weak um, head teachers who don't make the staff buy into it or don't inspire the staff to buy into the school culture and then you get just divisiveness and, and you get staff refusing to do things because they know there's going to actually be no uh, consequence, no comeuppance um, and it's difficult I mean people probably look at me with all my tattoos and everything and think I'm um, going to be this real kind of renegade rebel and I'm not, I'm the biggest rule follower and stickler for, for rules that there is it's hilarious and I'm a walking contradiction um, but uh, you know I just I just think when you start a school you spend so much of your life in in the school environment you know more more hours than you spend at home really a day and I just think that you have to choose a school whose culture you can buy into and a leader who you can trust and I think if you're at a school where you don't buy into the culture and you don't believe the leader and that is showing to your kids that you're teaching you know kids can read it and I just think if that's that's the case there are plenty of other schools that that you can go to so I guess it's it stems down to leadership doesn't it and a bravery in leadership to be able to to take hold and let go and trust the professionals that you've you've employed and I guess that's at different levels as well because as as you spoke about um the kind of political pressure from the government um, and again, the kind of structure is slightly different. We are still within local authority control, whereas obviously in England you have academies, um, grammar schools, you you have um, directly funded, and I don't even know because it seems so complicated, the, the, the picture, um, that I'm not sure I'm doing it justice. Um, but obviously the, the accountability, as you say, is still there. Um, but for teachers, then, what do you think teachers want in terms of autonomy? What do they want to be able to do in terms of to be trusted on what? The curriculum, you know, um, strategies in terms of learning, teaching, behaviour, you know, do they want money to spend things on themselves? What do you think that autonomy looks like? Trusted to feed back. Um, being trusted to do the business that that teachers do every single day, not having to be subjected to countless droppings, book scrutinies, um, you know, all all of these things being checked up on as if you're almost a child. Mm -hmm. Um, 
and you know I, I'm really lucky because the school I work at at the moment that I've been at for kind of the last six years we are more or less left to to do our jobs and that's another reason why I wrote the book because I've been in a school where I couldn't do my job and had no account um, no autonomy and now I'm in one that there, there is so I do know the grass is greener there are other places that you can go not all schools are stifling professionals in this way I mean obviously there has to be some accountability and quite rightly because you know we are working in a very important profession where the things that we do have a bearing on children's whole lives um so there has to be some accountability every industry has to have accountability so i'm not saying that you know we shouldn't be observed and, and things like that and things shouldn't be checked on but i think the excessive amount of checking is difficult i mean budgets would be lovely wouldn't they um but you know we know that that there isn't the the scope for that at the moment in terms of of budgets in schools and i think with the um emphasis of, of ofsted in, in england on curriculum i think professionals have been trusted more to to come up with their own curriculums i think because they've realized about the the breadth of knowledge that students should be getting and and the curriculum i would say is less narrowed now than it's been in my whole profession so i think things are moving in the right direction but i still think there's a lot of work to do in terms of all of the accountability particularly with results um i mean i'm not sure what it's like in primary but in secondary you know your gcse results mean everything and you kind of sat there um just filling spreadsheets in about what interventions you've put in place for for children you know why haven't they got this result it's it's quite terrifying really in a way i mean i've detailed in the book i can't sleep before results day and that's still and i'm not a middle leader i'm not responsible for anybody's results you know and middle leaders aren't responsible for kids results anyway it's it's ridiculous um but I still can't sleep before results day and, and I think a lot of teachers feel the same because you do feel personally responsible for those grades and this year is even worse because we've had the outside agency taken away and there's, they haven't done GCSE exams and the teachers have had to come up with the grades yeah. um, and you know and that terrifies me because yeah, you know the yeah. thing that we had to do as well we had to yeah estimate the grades based on evidence that we had i mean that worries me i think like what are parents going to say you know if you if you failed their child even if they deserved it and that's what the data said you know what comeuppance is there going to be for that i mean i don't know what the debate's been like in scotland about that but it's been an interesting one about looking at implicit bias of teachers and, and all sorts of things so yeah we'll let you know once results come out on the first <laughs> <laughs> is it the fourth yeah fourth of august yeah oh, 20th for us so we've <laughs> i wonder though just hearing you talking there and the 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 passion and the drive and even that the the sort of sleepless nights because you feel accountable for children's results and actually there's there's a huge emotive part about being a teacher isn't there and i think i think maybe there is we're kind of remiss with our structure and I think we're, we're, we've started that conversation in Scotland about how do we restructure so it's not just a management route that you can go down and and you discuss that in the book as well that kind of pressure of promotion and thinking about that and I just feel like with with sort of not focusing on the experienced classroom teacher that wants to sit in the te in, in the classroom and continue just to be an excellent practitioner we do need to do something different structurally do you know and we had a system in scotland with chartered teachers that 
didn't quite fulfil that that role in it. I just I don't I wonder if we can all maybe just think about what does that look like? What does a better structure look like that gives us that development from that that gives that accountability and that leadership which you clearly have in spades there? How do, how do we utilise that to to better achieve better outcomes for for all young people? Do you have any ideas? Yeah, I mean, I think we we had a similar system um, in in England as well to the chartered teacher. It was called the Excellent Teacher Program, and then we had um, advanced skills teachers (ASTs), uh, and that went by the wayside. I think I mentioned this in the book actually. And we now have lead practitioners and um, specialist leaders of education. But as I said in the book, lead practitioner roles are so few and far between. I mean, uh, to be a lead practitioner is actually my dream role, to be honest. Um, and I'm not applying for them at present because I love the school that I'm in. Um, so it's a difficult one. You know, how do I balance that? Do I leave a school that I love um, that I'm, I'm actually um, really kind of closely involved with because my son's in year seven at the school? Um, so it's, it's a difficult one. Um, or, or, you know, do I stay where I am and, and just wait for an opportunity? But there, there aren't any opportunities or there are very few for people like me who have lots of leadership skills, are keen to make a difference in a whole school or even outward facing way. Um but want to remain in the classroom and don't want to go the traditional route of, of middle leader, senior leader. Yeah. Um, you know, may have tried it, didn't like it, or, or it's just not for them. Um, so I think the government have recognised this clearly because they've brought all of these schemes in and these these issues and um, in, in, in the past that have now gone gone to uh, the wayside but I think the answer is to to give more opportunities I think also to give teachers opportunities for development that aren't necessarily promotions as well you know many teachers are chomping at the bit to do master's degrees but can't fund them um, so you know things like that or professional qualifications that teachers can do that are just something a little bit extra um, I think that's the answer, really. I mean, I've done master's degrees and I'm in the middle of a doctorate, but I've had to pay for those myself. Um, and I just think if schools could help fund those, there there would be many, many other teachers staying in the profession because it, they would feel like they are developing in some way and not going stagnant. Yeah. And I think that you've hit the nail on the head. I think it's about value in teachers. Um, and that is about investing in high quality professional learning. But I think when you touched upon the kind of lead practitioner role, Scotland are about to embark on a lead teacher type role. Mm. And I, I like the idea and I think it's a fantastic idea, but I think where we always get it wrong is we start out with this idea that it's going to be for classroom teachers who want to stay in the classroom, but then our accountability structures take over and say, well, actually we need more from them. So we give them more responsibility and then it becomes a leadership role and then the people who you want to attract are not interested because it's just another leadership role. And I think that's the danger, we, the trap we always fall into, that we just we create that with the best intentions but then we don't execute it properly. No, I think you're right and actually the lead practitioner role is on the leadership scale in England so you know essentially you could be earning the same as an assistant head mm-hmm. and you're very much treated as an assistant head in terms of you will have responsibility for a facet of the running of the school that may be teaching and learning NQTs or you know more able pupils something so you take a bit of work off a member of SLT who are usually massively overworked because the remits are ginormous mm-hmm. um, you know and you are on the leadership scale so you are essentially an assistant head mm-hmm. in all but name 
Um, and, and perhaps you're right, that may attract people who actually are looking to become a deputy head or a head. But actually, it, it can also attract those people who don't quite want to be an assistant head and don't want that trajectory, but actually do want to be outward facing and going into other, other schools in the LEA, um, you know, and, and working collaboratively with them. I mean, we've also, as I think at the moment, our systems flirting with the idea of like a master's levels entry so that we get kind of the kind of caliber of teachers who are, are doing that kind of level of study all the way through. So it's not just once you're in, that's it. Mm -hmm. um, you will continue to engage in a master's level study um, throughout your career. Um, I don't know what your thoughts are on that, obviously, having gone through master's level study yourself. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, they did try to do that in England, actually, the year that I um, graduated from my PGCE. So I was offered to do a master's in teaching and learning for free, and I did take that up. Um, so that was a big drive that we, ha we had in England a few years ago, but that, that kind of fell again because I think there wasn't a lot of take-up with it. Because when you start as an NQT in teaching, you know yourselves, I mean, it can be completely overwhelming. It's mind-blowing. Um, and you could work 24 hours a day um, and still not get everything done. So I think a lot of people started the master's in teaching and learning and thought this is great I'm getting a free master's and then realised the enormity of what they were actually signing up for um, you know and studying while you're working full time is hard mm -hmm. um, I mean over the last um, probably six or seven weeks I've wanted to quit my doctorate about a thousand times um, you know and anybody who follows me on Twitter will see on my Twitter um, feed you know several times of me questioning myself do I still want to do this and I do but it's hard to fit it all in um, so I mean I think it's a really um, good idea in terms of getting the calibre but actually some people who I've seen who are doctors aren't great teachers no um, and I think it's more than, than qualifications, isn't it? Being a good teacher in the classroom. Some of the worst teachers I've seen have had doctor in front of the name. Um, and, and I think that it's about more than that. It's about your presence. It's about your how you inspire kids. It's about the relationships that you, you make with them and, you know, um, getting through to people. And I sometimes think a PhD doesn't or a master's doesn't really guarantee that. Yeah. I guess the, the problem we're trying to solve is, well, certainly in, our, in my view, is our best teachers end up leaving the classroom because they go into promoted posts. And how, how can that even seem right that, you know, as a deputy head teacher sitting here, um, like I am in this position because I was recognised as being an excellent teacher, you've given the opportunities, you then become head of department and so on. But then that just takes you further and further away from the thing that you're actually you enjoy and you love and that's the I think the the big conundrum for us that I don't, I don't know I would just interject there with that just that consistency and I think the consistency applies something that we've discussed earlier but at all levels you know and it's the consistency with kind of further education and what the what the doctorates and what masters what their level of teaching gives us its consistency with what the role of a leader within a school is and I would say actually the role of a very good leader within a school is not moving further away from the classroom mm -hmm. as such but but I, I totally see where you're coming from because it is, does feel like that you're torn in so many directions mm -hmm. but it shouldn't be and actually the role of a school leader should be leading the school towards improvement towards helping staff and, and children and families and 
actually it's not and actually what we're what we're saying here with this kind of a bit of a state of the nation address and within the book that you, that you touch on so many of these issues that we've discussed tonight so well and then everybody that you've spoke to also articulates them is that there are these really big systemic problems that, that we need to fix at all levels and it's not just a case of you fix one and everything comes in all neat and nice you know and I wonder then if just as, as we're kind of coming to that point of the conversation um your your kind of final chapter is this call to arms I wonder what what would you say what's your parting thought for us or for for, for experienced teachers listening to this what what would you say to them just now Hayley? I think you know think of all the positives of your, of your job because we are glass half empty people um you know and i think think of all the children's lives that you've made a massive difference to and that's why i mentioned you know i wasn't kind of um blowing my own trumpet at the end of the chapter by by detailing a message that i got from from one of the girls that i saw i think it's so important for us as teachers to keep the cards and the messages and the emails and all of the positive things that we get because they are just life affirming completely and utterly and when i've had a, i have a notice board in my classroom with them all on um, and when i've had a bad day you know i think god i don't want to do this anymore you know we've all had those days where we're on the tes looking for jobs or even on on tesco seeing if there's any checkout assistant roles going um and i look on my notice board and i see these messages and i think no do you know what keep going you do make a difference um and you know i, th I think for me that is what keeps me going and a lot of teachers going as well and if you think about it objectively and that's hard especially when you're tired or emotional um there are so many positives to this career um you know the kids being one of them the fantastic colleagues that you get to work with the holidays <laughs> dare i say it um especially if you've got a family you know i know we work so hard during term time and i feel like i barely see my husband and children during term time but my goodness i make up for it in the holidays yeah um, you know, and we are just so privileged to do this career and to see children develop before our eyes. And, and you know, those kids will never forget an excellent teacher. You know, some of the kids I've taught now are in the 30s, early 30s, you know, and it's amazing that some of them still keep in touch with me. You know, you'll be in the supermarket and it'll be Mrs. Hughes. And, you know, it's, it's amazing. And I just love it. And I'm so glad that I stumbled into this wacky world um and um you know i've loved almost every minute <laughs> amazing thank you so much what a, what a wonderful uh, conversation and i think i would thoroughly recommend uh, preserving positivity for anyone who's listening so it's, it's a fantastic book that really does get into a lot of these really tough and challenging and delicate issues but actually we, we need to address them if we're going to be moving forward to banish that challenging that negative mindset that, that, that you spoke about in, in, in the book there because there are so many wonderful things about being a teacher and, and thank you so much for highlighting them that was brilliant no thank you very much John Cap Educational are a leading publisher of professional development books for educators around the world check out their titles at johncat.com 